Welcome to another episode of Axel Blagad, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? I think I said that I'm angry and full of takes today, or <laughs> maybe cranky. So, a great, great mindset to be in for a podcast, I would say. Yeah, actually, that's actually a very good mindset to be in for a podcast, because, uh, I mean, a you don't want a boring podcast where everyone's like, oh, it's a nice day today. Yes, let's have lemonade. <laughs> I mean, earlier this week, I went on Video Game Apocalypse, um, and I participated in their top 10 games of the decade discussion, and I trashed like half their picks. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar. I think I've been through that. I, they were like, okay, if you don't like the, the, the game that you actively hate, just make a reference to it being like playing it on a Zenith television. And I just started calling everyone the Zenith of its particular genre. <laughs> wow, you sound like you were pretty salty, actually. I was only salty about one, and that was GTA V. Oh, you don't think that should be on a best of decade list? No, I think it's been actively bad for video games, actually. Oh, really? That's a very interesting take. I know this is an RPG podcast, but I... We should subscribe to your newsletter. Okay. Uh, I think that putting aside the fact that I don't like any of the protagonists, I find them horrible and I don't want to play as horrible human beings. Uh Like not in the usual GTA way, but in like the genuinely just, they make my skin crawl with how awful they are. Yeah, I was never a fan myself. I think it's satire sucks. I don't particularly like LA. I really am sad about the death of the GTA expansion, which was legit good in GTA 4. Right. And I think GTA Online's a blight on gaming. Yeah, I'm, I am quite salty about GTA 5 because I feel like that's keeping us from getting like any DLC for uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. Just the fact that GTA 5 is the best-selling game of the generation and yeah. one of the best-selling games of, you know, the millennium or ever. Yeah. Just... I don't know. It really sets a bad example, I feel. And I don't know. I just don't want to celebrate it. So that's why it's not on the list. That's fair. Yeah. So um, I would have liked to hear you get salty over GTA 5. I'm sure that was pretty <laughs> entertaining. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I also got salty about their inclusion of Shadow of Mordor. Really? Which, that's, a, that's, a, that's an inclusion. I mean... Yeah, I was just like, okay, I'm surprised by the inclusion of this game, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think it's held up all that well, but we had a, like, a good discussion about it. That's anyway, nice. I, I think you they should go go listen to it. Also on Twitter today, which would have been a few days ago as of the launch of this podcast, I've been just dropping tons of top threes. Yes, I saw that. Which apparently I've turned into a thing, now everybody's doing it, which is fun. Yeah, I should do it. <laughs> so go check that out. Um, beyond that... Uh, if we're going to be salty and full of takes, well, this is great because we're going to be talking about the RPG uh, decade that was uh, the 2010s. Because uh, last week, we released the top 100 games of the decade. It was a list that was in production for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. We spent a lot of time putting that together. I think it received a pretty good reception. Interestingly, nobody has taken note of the fact that GTA V is nowhere to be found on it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the feedback I've seen, the negative feedback that I've seen is people are wondering where Mario Kart 8 is, uh, which I suppose is fair. But at the same time, like while Mario Kart 8 is one of the best examples of Mario Kart it, and it was very successful on Nintendo Switch, it sort of feels weird to put on a top 100 games of the decade list because it borrows, it, it's such a well-established formula, right? Yeah. Like, it, 
it's a really well done example of a very well established formula, but it's hard for me to be like, yes, like this really takes the formula above and beyond. This is just like, man, like maybe it's the peak example of Mario Kart 8. Like you can probably make an example, like a really strong argument for being on the list. Right. But at the same time, like I just didn't feel passionate about part- putting Mario Kart 8 on there. Yeah, that's fair enough. Like, because um, uh, Mario Kart 8 is it's an excellent game, but it's not like, like we put Smash on there because Smash is just like so remarkable in that, yes, it is kind of like the it's game. It's so huge. Exactly. Oh it's my the game. God. It, we, it was built off the Wii U game, absolutely. But they added so much to it and they're still adding so much to it that I, I feel like it really deserves a spot on the list. Whereas I feel like Mario Kart 8 could have a spot on the list if, uh, as Mike has brought up many times before, Nintendo would actually support the game. They could it's, add, they could make it a smash. They could make it so much fun, but they just, and this is like the best selling game I on mean, the, it on did the get DLC ultimately. And yeah. the Switch version was an improvement for sure. Oh, absolutely. But it could have so much more. And I know I shouldn't be out here saying, oh, we need more DLC, but I think Nintendo does really good DLC and they could, I would love to see more Mario Kart content. Another one was Astrobot Rescue, which is the VR platformer yeah, for PlayStation just, VR. Uh, and a lot of people are, like, really passionate about pushing VR as a thing. Right. I still consider VR to be a super nascent uh, medium. And while I appreciate games that continue to push it forward, and probably it deserved a place on the li- this list, I personally have not played Astrobot, and I'm not extremely passionate about VR. So, I mean, I'll admit it's probably a blind spot for it's me. It's definitely a blind spot for me. I get motion sickness quite easily from VR, so I, I just kind of ignore it. I am interested to see what happens with VR once uh, Half-Life Alex comes out. I think Half-Life Alex is overrated. <laughs> it's not even out yet. <laughs> uh, did I mention the salty and full of takes? <laughs> no shit. I, I think first person anything is a horrible medium for VR. Uh, because it just, yeah, they're, they're, keep, they're continuing to push it forward. And everything, but there's just no universe in which I will ever play Half-Life Alex because A, first-person shooters make me nauseated. B, they're just inherently compromised in the way that they're designed. It's just not a great way to enjoy first-person. I don't know. They always feel so slow and slow, so clunky, even the good examples. And they've made great strides in recent years. Medal mm-hmm. of Honor was like pretty neat, but they still feel like a... Like a key example of novelty over actual quality right and i fully expect half-life alex to be the same and then three just hell just like head crabs and vr is a hell no it's just <laughs> hard hard no <laughs> yeah it's like i played uh, five nights at freddy's in vr and that was that was enough for me frankly i think beat saber is way cooler than half-life alex could ever be because music the rhythm genre is such a better u- better use of yeah, VR. Yeah, it really is. Like a Tetris effect. I think the one good thing about Half-Life Alex, like I don't care about Half-Life anyway. I don't care about the lore. I think the lore is like whatever. I think the universe is whatever. I acknowledge that it's done so much to push forward the conventions of shooters, but also I hate shooters. So mm-hmm. I don't uh. care. This is just me. This is just my biases showing through. Did I mention I'm salty and full of today? <laughs> Maybe a couple of times. Uh, like, I've just, I don't know. I'm getting sent my ways or whatever. That's why I talk about RPGs and old stuff all the time now. But 
That's uh, fair. I, I think the one good thing about Half-Life Alex is that it puts you in the body of Alex and all of these male gamers are like, I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it's a bit of a it's not a huge, huge controversy, but you definitely have your complainers. And it's like, well, Alex has always been like one of the like one of the top references when you're talking about like cool women in video games. Like she's always been there and I've always liked her. Anyway, circling back to the point of this podcast, we're going to talk about the decade that was RPGs. Uh, we're going to talk about all the trends. We're going to talk about what happened. We're going to talk about our list. We're going to talk about some of the omissions from that list. So that will be our second segment. We're also going to talk about the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer, which dropped, though it did not come along with the, tr- with the demo, which I yeah. find interesting. Um, I was hearing, oh, there's going to be the demo, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting all hyped for it. And it's like, okay, well, it's a three and a half minute trailer. That's pretty cool, although it's not the demo. I am... A little worried <clears throat> because you? there are just signs that they're really pressing to get this thing done. Like there was supposed to be a huge event for Final Fantasy VII Remake in January. Right. And they canceled it. I, th- I think it's notable that uh, the only gameplay they've shown so far is the stuff that they've been showing at E3 for like a year now. Yeah. And I mean, that stuff, like what I played at PAX, it was very good. I mean, there's mm. clearly stuff there and it's clearly polished, but I understand like, okay... They want to add a little bit more polish. Like a month isn't going to make a difference after how many years it's been. My biggest fear is that the gameplay is going to ultimately prove like really frenetic and really shallow like Final Fantasy XV's. Uh, No, it was definitely, for what I played, it was definitely deeper than Final Fantasy XV's. And of course, you always have the option to go back to the more menu-based system. I hope so. I'm really looking forward to this game and I'm going to be reviewing it. So God, I hope they get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm jealous you're reviewing it. Yeah, me too. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we go any further, Axel Bloodgod is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. We always enjoy hearing feedback from our listeners. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And if you want to have feedback on the show, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a message over DM on Twitter, or leave a comment on our show notes on the site. We also have a newsletter that goes out every single week, and Nadia puts it together, and you can subscribe to it on our website. Nadia, what is the topic of this week's newsletter? Uh, I talked a little bit about like whether or not you rename your characters in RPGs and rename your Pokemon, that kind of thing, because I always rename my characters and my Pokemon. And uh, I once read an article not that long ago saying that, like, half of Pokemon players don't name their Pokemon. I'm like, how can you do that? They're they're your friends. You got to give them names. I usually... Okay, so when I play RPGs now, I don't end up renaming the characters, except for the main character. Right. Who I always name Cat. <laughs> Even if it's a boy? Even if it's a boy. Awesome. Because it's kind of a self-insert kind of, of thing. Of course, it's you. Yeah, no, it's like, I am this character. Like, I, I name Link Cat for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Uh, when Final Fantasy, when I first started playing Final Fantasy VI, I did rename all of the characters to my friends. Oh, that's which, nice. Which was a, a common thing. But then after that, like, it kind of started breaking my immersion to name, you know, Cyan Joe or whatever. <laughs> Joe the Samurai. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I mean, these are the actual names of the characters, and it's totally messing me up that... Uh, they had different names than they should have, so. 
Uh, I had a friend who used to name their characters like a boy and a girl. So it would be like, hey, a boy, let's go save a girl. Like it was it was pretty funny. With Pokemon, I only name I tend to only name the Pokemon that I actually care about. Yeah, to be fair, with Pokemon um, Sword and Shield, I was I didn't name every Pokemon. I just I knew I wasn't going to use like that Pidgey, so that Pidgey was going to go in the box anyway. I'm like, I'm not naming you, but I always name the Pokemon that I use. The Pidgey knows that I don't care because I just go Pidgey go. <laughs> the funniest thing I ever saw, and I um, referenced this in my newsletter. I was just like standing beside a kid on a crowded bus, and he was playing Pokemon on the Game Boy, and he had named his Blastoise A A A A A, like capital A's. And so whenever, like, the Blastoise went out into the fray, it looked like um, Red was screaming, like, go Blast, go, ah, you know? (laughs) Yeah, there's some really good ways that you can mess around with the names in these games and get people to say funny things. Yeah. I think it was in Secret of Evermore that if you named yourself a curse word, (laughs) when you tried to get on a boat, the Grim Reaper would go... Uh, yeah, normally I would charge this, but I'm actually going to pay a charge more because I don't like your filthy mouth, you. Yeah. <laughs> I love stuff like that when they reference, like, you know, you, we just like, oh, you're saying a bad word. You're not, a, we're going to call you out on that. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, I, I did with, uh, I think I already mentioned that with Pokemon Sword and Shield, I was naming all of the Pokemon after soccer stars. Yes. Because... Uh, so naming uh, my far-fetched Zlatan because he just... I don't know. He had that very uh, smug look about him, much like the real life Slata. <laughs> yes, he did. And I named the bunny uh, Messi because he likes, I don't know, like he's really, he, used, he kicks soccer balls at people's heads that are on fire. Sounds about like Messi. So. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Anyway, so I, I don't know. Like, I'm curious. Do you, list, uh, do you name your RPG characters? I am referring to the audience. Uh, yeah, send me a note. Uh, and also make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Okay, moving on. Nadia, let's talk about the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer. Yes. Uh, a few notable things. Uh, that was our first glimpse of Red Thirteen, who is very fuzzy. Yes, I love how fuzzy he is. I want to pet him. Yes. Uh, yeah, like, I always liked Red Thirteen, um, and I usually have him in my party. And Me too. this is just more reason to have him in my party, because he looks great. Yeah, I always go for, like, kind of the beast characters. He was always a very interesting character. And also, he seems to have the best voice acting out of the bunch. He does, yes. And I like how he's like, uh, Bar- Barrett's like, what the hell is it? And of course, Red Thirteen is like, what do you see is what you see. And I love the fact he's like basically doing an act because he's trying to act a lot older than he is. Like once you actually get to Cosmo Canyon, his grandfather's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's just a stupid teenager. And uh, Red Thirteen gets all offended. I think that the voice acting is really cheesy, but it's almost intentionally cheesy. Yeah. Um I just came off finishing, like, uh, A Realm Reborn, which uh, has very, at points, very terrible voice acting. I hear that they changed the whole cast out by it for Heaven's Word, or most of it. So this sounded really good to me. Um, I, I'm i still convinced that Don Corneo is Mark Hamill. I try to get confirmation from Square. They won't tell me one way or the other, so I guess I'll be surprised. But he's pretty well, great. Is Don Corneo Mark Hamill an investigation? Could, could be an article that does well, Nadia. People have already, like, done the investigation, but I'll do more. I can do more. <laughs> more investigations. More investigation on, on Mark Hamill. You're journalists. The people need to know. <laughs> hey, I tried to get sources, and the sources were climbing up. Somebody said that we were critical of the cross-dressing scene, uh, and maybe they're referring to the episode where we were talking about 
that entire bit in the Honey Bee Inn. Yes, and how they would handle it because um, we were – that was actually a very widely asked question. Like, how are they going to handle this cross-dressing scene? And that was a major part of the trailer. And uh, number one, Cloud looks adorable in a dress. Mm. I love how old-fashioned it is. It's like all full of ruffles and stuff. And like, I love the ribbons in his hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a good friend of mine pointed out, like, it's really interesting how the Honey Bee Inn, from what we can tell, has gone from being kind of a sketch sort of like, you know, uh, place of ill repute to, well, it looks like kind of a, a cabaret or or something like that. Like, you know, kind of like uh, La Maison Derriere from The Simpsons. <laughs> is Don Corneo by now? Because I think he says this is a place where we don't really care about gender. That wasn't Don Corneo. That was some character I, I've never seen before. But yes, he said like, you know, beauty doesn't know any gender. And of course, he's right. So so uh, was that just them clocking Cloud and not knowing? How progressive of Final Fantasy VII, if that's the case? Well, uh, like, I'll tell you what, Cloud looks like he, he looks a little bit confused when, you know, that handsome, <laughs> very handsome man gets very close to his face and... I don't blame when him, Cloud's frankly. in his arms and he's like, "Wow, it's like this is producing feelings I've just yeah. never had before." I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm scared and yet somehow intrigued. I'm very intrigued. No, it was, uh, it was a pretty interesting scene. It looks like it's almost going to be like a musical. And like I just saw last week or this week rather, Phantom of the Opera. So I am all pro musical right now. If they want to do a whole number, I'm there for it. Oh man, I saw Phantom of the Opera for the first time a few years ago on Broadway, and it was pretty good. Yeah, it's great. I know every word of that stupid play. I saw it with my mom. We had a great time. And now you've got the main theme stuck in your head for the next week, right? Uh, I've got all the themes stuck in my head. I've just Because I like singing all the phantom parts because they have a low voice. But uh, continuing on with the Final Fantasy VII Remake trailer, once they got to the second, the back half, where they're actually showing a lot of the gameplay, I was I felt myself getting pretty hype, I gotta say. Yeah, it looks like a, it's very exciting. I like seeing all the, like, you know, kind of new stuff. Uh, I like seeing Palmer. I wrote an article, but it'll, of course, it's up by the time that this is up. Uh, I wrote about Palmer because I think Palmer is just the perfect example of everything wrong with corporations. Here's this, he's a total dumbass. His whole stick is like, I like tea with lard in it. And he's in charge of something in Shinra. Like he is on, he is in the hierarchy. And he basically has the power to ruin lives and he's stupid as all hell. The only good part thing is that he gets hit by a truck. Yeah, I think the the truest thing you said in that article was that Palmer is the terrifying like person who is completely worthless and kind of an idiot, but somehow has risen to the top of the corporate hierarchy and can ruin your life. Yeah, and I actually looked around to see, okay, do we know anything about Palmer? Why is he here? And there's no answer. Like, I can't find anything. So a friend of mine said, yeah, it's probably nepotism. I mean, almost certainly. He's probably somebody's son yeah. <laughs> who got a job as a low level, a junior executive and just stuck around for a long time. If you assume that Shinra is a tra- is a corporation in the traditional Japanese sense, you have a job for life, right? Yes, that's true. And therefore, he would never get fired for incompetence or anything. So he would just kind of, but apparently he wasn't so incompetent that he just got shunted off into a job that doesn't matter yeah or- he he used to be uh the space program he used to be in charge of that and for a long time shinra dropped that so okay so maybe that was a job that didn't matter it was a space program they're like uh yeah let's do this uh palmer yeah. you're in charge of it palmer you're in charge of it and it's like that's all he cares about and the you know executives can be talked about anything else and his only question is number one where's the tea with the lard in it number two why aren't we funding the space program 
meanwhile, this, the president's talking about dropping a plate on like helpless citizens. When I was working for a company in Japan, they created an entire leadership track for one person because they had no idea what to do with them, but they weren't ever going to go anywhere and they couldn't fire them. Yeah, that's just kind of like, and on one hand, it's like, hey, great job security. On the other hand, uh, that would be a really miserable position to be in. But Palmer's going to get hit by a truck. It's going to be great. Yeah. Like I said in my article, there's no golden parachute for him, just a truck. <laughs> and going, ugh. Ugh. That's <laughs> such a great scene. I'd love to, like, just interview, if I ever get a chance to interview, like, Sakaguchi or anyone from who worked on that game, I'd be like, why was Palmer hit by a truck? What made you sit down and decide that was going to happen? And you're also observing that uh, Sephiroth has cat eyes now. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, I'm looking at this trailer like, what the hell? What the hell's going on with his eyes? He has cat eyes. And I said to my friend, who's like uh, an expert on all things Sephiroth, I said, has he always had cat eyes? She's like, yeah. And she shows me this like screenshot from, of course, Vanilla Final Fantasy VII. And he had slits like uh, like a cat. It's like, holy crap. Does he see in the dark? That's That's really weird and cool. Why do that? Well, I have my own theories on why he has cat eyes, but I'm not going to share them on this podcast because I'm going to be uh, more sensitive about spoilers, I think. Even mm. though Final Fantasy VII is a 23-year-old game at this point, uh, I think that a lot of people are coming into it like pretty fresh, and so I will do my best to respect spoilers. <laughs> By the way, if you've managed to avoid Final Fantasy VII uh, spoilers all this time, congratulations, because it really is like a... It was a sled, it was his sled territory for that. Yeah, it's like certain events that take place in the game are practically part of pop culture now. Oh, I mean, at least for video game culture. Yes, yes. But, I mean, there are a lot of people who were literally born after it came out. <laughs> you know? Oh my god, what, how do people have the nerve to be younger than me? I don't get it. <laughs> way younger. <laughs> <laughs> way, way younger. In fact, one of them, one of uh, the people on our staff, I think, was one or two years old when Final Fantasy VII came out. Ah, oh, Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph. It's, it's terrible. Well, no respect. Well, now that I've turned to dust, uh, <laughs> Nadia, do you have any other thoughts on the Final Fantasy VII remake trailer? I really enjoyed it. I watched it several times, and I like said to my husband, hey, watch the trailer with me, even though he's not really a huge Final Fantasy VII fan. Um I have to say, I love Little Cloud. He's so cute. His little ponytail and his hopes and dreams are going to be crushed. I hope the trailer is indicative indicative of the overall quality of the game, and not and that they just aren't an example of like, well, man, those trailers were hype, but man, the game was a mess. I hope so, but I, I have good feelings about the game. I think Square's taking it extremely seriously. I think that this is almost their proof of concept that if Final Fantasy VII Remake is extremely successful, that that's the direction Final Fantasy goes in from now on. That's interesting because I, I think Final Fantasy XVI, I just think that it's under production right now. I think Yoshi P is in charge of it. So I think we'll be hearing something eventually, uh, sooner than later. So I don't know if it's like, we've only seen like maybe a shot of concept art. So I don't know if it's like, if they decide on a battle system or anything like that. Well, hopefully Square shows it soon and I get a chance to talk to the developers. I am as hype as ever for Final Fantasy VII Remake. And now that Cyberpunk has been delayed to September, which I'm extremely salty about. Oh, right. Yes. So you have, a, you have a clean slate, though. You have a clear slate. I know. I hope Final Fantasy VII Remake is more than like 20 hours long. <laughs> yeah, that's the I really that's the hate that it's episodic. About. I really hate that. Yeah. Um, I've heard a rumor that it ends um, 
around the time a certain event happens, a, a certain big event, which would be a lot longer than I thought it would be. But but that's I, like not not a good place for a game to end. That's a cliffhanger. I don't want my game to end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> it's terrible. And yeah, what be they in- should do is they should end the game at the end of the actual game. Yeah, that's then- an idea. That's a novel idea. And then have uh, part two be all of the dumb expansion packs in it, Advent Children and stuff. Oh, I don't want to do Advent Children. Advent Children is so stupid. Or here's an idea. Just don't make it episodic. Just don't. I guess, I guess it's too late. They're making it episodic and we got to deal with it. I, I think that's the one thing that could end up ruining. I hope not. Um, I really do hope that it's a good, meaty, long RPG. I really do hope we get a chance to get out of Midgar, even though I still think it's going to end like right as they leave Midgar. Well... Yeah, we've been waiting five years for Final Fantasy VII Remake. What's another few months? In fact, in many ways, the wait has defined this decade in some ways. It really has. And on that note, let's continue on to the best RPGs of the decade. Don't go away. Okay, we are back, and we are here to talk about the decade that was RPGs, 2010 to 2019. I guess the first question I'm going to ask you, Nadia, Mm -hmm. where were you on January 1st, 2010? (laughs) You're asking me? Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Oh, God, I think I was starting to write a lot about mobile games and stuff like that. I was really working on getting my freelance career off the ground. That's all I remember. God, my 20s and 30s are such a blur. That's so funny because you were freelancing before I was. In fact, I remember you being on Talking Time and posting a thread about how you're a starving freelancer and being just utterly terrified. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. I was being pretty sarcastic. Like, I I worked very hard to get, like, work. And I did keep myself afloat quite quite well. Um, My path, like, I got married early. I didn't really go to any sort of a post-secondary education, um, so I just had to work on my own. And when, when there was something to be written, I said, hey, I'll do it. Nadia is the hardest working person in games, let me tell you that. Ah, that's nice. In January 1st, uh, 2010, I actually went back to my old tweets from then. Oh. Yeah, because I was kind of curious. I had my Twitter around that time. Uh-huh. I was talking about how excited I was uh, for the PSP in that year. Aww, that's adorable. I was like, man, a lot of good games coming out on the PSP. I've been playing it so much over the holidays. Yeah, it's like, it was a good handheld. I, I liked my PSP very much until my brother lost it. I think I said that I was really looking forward to Mass Effect 2 and Fallout New Vegas. So mm-hmm. I was very much on the RPG tip at that time. I think it was January uh, 2010 where I got an Xbox 360 for the first time, and I lucked it home on my flight back from Minnesota because my friend had given me one. And it was kind of unexpected. I hadn't really expected to get an Xbox 360. I had a PS3. I thought it was fine. Mm-hmm. But I ended up actually liking my 360 a lot more than my PS3. Yeah, I actually remember I did have a PS... Uh, sorry, a Xbox 360. I never got a PS3 until my brother gave me his like a few years ago. And um, I remember I fell in love with Bioshock like everyone else around the time. I really preferred the UI and the achievements, and it felt like yes. all of my friends were on 360 and hardly anybody was on PS3. And 
the games that were coming out on PS3 just were at a lower quality than the 360 version. Yeah, the 360 was a it was a good system. I played mine a lot. Yeah, I played so much 360. It was ridiculous. 2010 was also the year that I got into sports games properly. Oh, there you go. Congratulations. Yeah, I picked up Madden for the first time, and then that became a like five-year-long obsession for a while. <laughs> and that was the end of that. To my detriment. But uh, as for the RPGs, I mean, let's talk about some of the notable trends in RPGs for the decade that was the 2010s. I wrote down five major things, and maybe we can talk about them a bit. Mm-hmm. Nadia. Okay. First one, the decade started with JRPGs at low ebb. Yes. This was, I believe, just a year after Inafune, uh, who worked on... Am I getting that right? It was Inafune, right? Who worked yes. on Mega Man? Yes, he did. Said that basically Japanese games are dead. Yes. Oh, man. That was certainly a thing he said. It was certainly a dark time to be a fan of Japanese games, I would say. It was. Um, you know, we were just sitting here talking about how much we loved our Xbox uh, 360, and there were not a whole bunch of Japanese-made games on that system. Yeah, they were putting out games like Lost Odyssey yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, and I think in 2008, uh, like there were games like Tales of Vesperia, uh, but so many of the best Japanese games were exclusive to handheld. Yes, uh, I think that was the DS was probably going strong at that point. And it felt like nobody in the broader gaming discourse took Japanese games seriously, and especially JRPGs. Yeah, JRPGs were definitely, as you say, at an ebb. I felt like in the industry, uh, people who were into JRPGs were like the very uncool kids who (laughs) nobody would talk to. Yeah. And be like, what game are you anticipating the most? Oh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, uh, did Final Fantasy XIII come out in 2010? I think it did. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Final Fantasy 13. Oh, yeah. Okay. And there oh, you're f- not gonna, you're not into Gears of War too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's one thing I do remember about maybe it was 2008, but it was around that time when uh, commercials for games were really good, and Gears of War had that really incredible commercial with like Mad World, um, the song, and it made me think the game was something that it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Platinum Games came around back around this time, didn't it? It was 2009, 2010. Yeah. And that was that was exciting. And in 2007, we got, or 2008, sorry, we got Valkyria, Valkyria Chronicles, which was absolutely gorgeous. But yes. games like that were relatively rare. Yeah, they were. And to this day, I still love Valkyria Chronicles. But yeah, that was definitely, it was very different at the time. Now, Valkyria Chronicles, as much as I love it, doesn't look quite as different as it did back then. If you, I mean, like, if you look at the major JRPG franchises at that time, Persona 4 was a PS2 game. Mm-hmm. Uh, P- PS2 was still going very strong. It was, yes. Uh, there were games for the Wii, but it wasn't carrying the torch as well as it could have. Uh, when you look at the major Japanese franchises, Final Fantasy was in like the middle of a very disastrous period. Oh, yes. Yes. Because they were in the middle of like massive delays for Final Fantasy thirteen. Uh, the Final Fantasy compilation of Final Fantasy VII was Ugh. kind of a bust. Uh, Square just like Square's output was bad. Yeah, it was a it was a bad time for Final Fantasy because compilation was terrible, except for Crisis Core. That was actually a very good game, but that was PSP. And that I think came out on Amer- North American PSP in like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. It was around that time. Yeah, um, yeah. George's Cerberus was the stupidest game in the world. 
God. It actually it might have come out earlier than that. It might have come back and come out as early as 2008. <laughs> yeah, my apologies. Uh, and then Dragon Quest was coming out on the DS. It was a DS exclusive. Yes, it was Dragon Quest Nine. Uh, what year was that anyway? Was that 2012? Who even knows? I can't keep track of the years. I do remember the really fun thing about Dragon Quest Nine, and this was really indicative of where games were going to be going in the in the subsequent years. Was the inn collecting people at my inn? Um, especially going that was so much fun. That was yeah, that would have been a lot of fun in Japan because I basically went to like conventions. Like I went to Fan Expo in Toronto. I went to Otakon, and I'd get like all these all these friends, and I actually still have a, a friend on Twitter I talked to who I first met through my inn. So, point number two. MMORPGs were still huge, but oh, yeah. just beginning to wane in 2010-2011. Yeah, um, I was looking up the whole history of MMORPGs recently, and yeah, it was really kind of a late aughts thing. It was still very influential in the early 10s, but you're right, it was starting to wane a little bit. In 2010, we were a year removed from probably the most popular expansion and the absolute peak of World of Warcraft, which was the uh, the, the Lich King one. Yeah, I was going to say Lich King or Cataclysm, maybe. Yeah, it was definitely Lich King was the most popular. Yeah, that was like, God, you had the South Park episode. It was like the height of, of um, pop culture. Yeah, and that was when it drew in a ton of people... And that was when it was more accessible than it had ever been, but it was still kind of old school. Yes. And people didn't get frustrated and turned off until a little bit later after that. But this was when Bioware started work on Star Wars The Old Republic, which Mm -hmm. everybody was like, well, of course it's going to be a gigantic game. I mean, come on. It's And Bioware was hyping it up as three or four games in one. Oh, yes. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't terrible. It's just once everybody finished the main campaign, they're like, well, no reason to keep playing this. (laughs) Is it still active? Is it still up? Yeah, it's still going. A lot of people will tell you that the main main story is very high quality. Uh Uh-huh. But that a lot of the subsequent expansions are, like, dramatically worse. Yeah, one thing I actually pointed out in another piece I wrote is that um, a lot of RPGs at the time, even the ones that were single player, were extremely influenced. Their battle systems were extremely influenced by MMORPGs. Uh, I pointed yeah, out. Yeah, I hated it. Yeah, like Final Fantasy XII was kind of infamous for it. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, uh, which I picked as my honorable mention for the whole list, that definitely had a system that was influenced by MMORPGs. Speaking uh, so- as somebody who's salty and full of takes, I. <laughs> My absolute least favorite thing about just generally RPGs being heavily influenced by MMORPGs is I just don't like MMORPG battle systems. That's why I can't get into Final Fantasy XIV. It's definitely my least favorite part of Final Fantasy XIV. Um, I'm getting used to the whole idea of rotations and, you know, being DPS and blah, blah, blah. And it's definitely a lot more technical than than previous Final Fantasy games. It's kind of weird because I still kind of go back to Final Fantasy IV and pick at it while I'm, you know, just kind of sitting on the couch. And just going from Final Fantasy XIV's battle system to Final Fantasy IV is such a jump. It can be really intense and everything, but I prefer the slower, more tactical, turn-based nature of it. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a lot more intense in Final Fantasy XIV, especially when you are with a group and you got to be... God, we were trying to be Garuda... And something happened with our tank, like they were just not paying attention or whatever. 
And that was a really frustrating battle because if your tank's not tanking, you're all tanking, you know? <laughs> Garuda killed us like five times. If your tank's not tanking, you're all tanking. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a good philosophy and it's true. And then there was a time I, I'm a dragoon and I decided I would be fancy and I would do like this giant leap out of danger when I was in the area of effect. I went right off the edge of the <laughs> thing and died. And the best part of that is I earned two player commendations. Okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I'm lying there dead and this guy, one of our characters in our party is like, look at, look at how they massacred my boy. Okay. Observation number three. The decade was arguably owned by Bethesda and CD Projekt in terms of RPGs. Mm -hmm. uh, Larian was ascendant while Bioware fell off a cliff. Yeah, you're definitely right about Bioware, and you're also right about Bethesda, because, yes, of course, this was the decade that we saw Skyrim. This was the decade we saw uh, Fallout, 4, Fallout 3 and 3. Which, and uh, Fallout 4, which Fallout 4 was, I mean, a lot of people rag on it, but oh my god, when that game came out, it was one of the single biggest events of the whole decade in terms of traffic and just pure yeah. search interest. I still have my shirt from the uh, the launch. Um, I also have laundry detergent. I don't understand why I got that. I think our traffic like tripled when Fallout Four came out. That's right. We got we had a huge huge surge in traffic. That and Pokemon Go were the events that really and just, RDR two. Right, RDR two was also huge. Yeah, those are like some of the big ones. That's why I have a lot of anticipation for Cyberpunk because, oh man, oh that's gonna be so good for traffic. It's gonna be exciting. <laughs> But yeah, no, so even though, I mean, it was kind of despite itself that Bethesda had such a good decade because a lot of people were very frustrated with Skyrim and Fallout 4 and Fallout 76, but like it or not, it really dominated things. Yeah, particularly Skyrim. I know a lot of people were frustrated by Skyrim, but for a lot of people, that was their entry into not just Elder Scrolls, but these open world adventure games. Like I know that was, I was really intimidated by Skyrim at first and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I did. And I really enjoyed myself. And I said, I can't wait to see a bug. And then a giant hit me and I flew up in the sky. And it was great. Uh, CD Projekt and Larian kind of came out of nowhere to really become... I mean, CD Projekt is now in the an S-tier kind yes. of studio that is just universally revered. But Larian has skyrocketed. Like, they just continue to grow in esteem with RPG fans. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will always root for... CD Projekt Red, because to me, they will always be that little tiny booth I visited in E3 2006, and they were so unknown that they gave the, the interview to a freelancer. Like, go interview these guys from Poland or something. I don't know. They have some game, some game called The Witcher. And they were great. <laughs> like, they were all just, like, so friendly and like, oh, oh, yeah, soon he will die. And then there was Bioware, which really did fall off a cliff, uh, as yeah. I already mentioned. Uh they started with a game that we listed as one of the top 10 games of the decade, Mass Effect 2. But as I tweeted on its anniversary, Mass Effect 2 was an incredibly great game that taught Bioware all of the wrong lessons. That's an interesting thing you said. You're going to have to outline that for me because I have not played Mass Effect 2 yet. So before Mass Effect 2, Bioware was a company that made its fame on turning tabletop experiences mm. into really high-quality AA and AAA experiences. But they didn't get rid of the tactical elements. They were still very heavy on the role-playing aspects. With Mass Effect 2, they went a lot more action-heavy. They went mm. a lot more set-piece-heavy. Uh, they definitely watered down a lot of the RPG elements, like the crafting and the, more, and the meteor kind of systems. 
And the storytelling, frankly, wasn't as good as it had been in the past. And from that point forward, Bioware games started to feel like almost self-parody in some ways. Yeah, I think that the low point for Bioware was probably Sonic Chronicles. <laughs> I mean, that was in like 08 or something like that. Was it so. 08? It was yeah, a- so that was before Mass Effect 2. Okay, because that was like, a lot of people say that was indicative of of EA taking over Bioware and saying, okay, this is what you're doing now. Uh, We say it is so, so therefore it is happening the way we want it to happen. And one of the things it did, of course, was just apparently abandoned uh, Sonic Chronicles to its fate before it really had a chance to be finished. So yeah, here's Bioware's decade. Star Wars The Old Republic. Eh. Meh. Eh. And honestly, they probably... uh, split themselves too much to spread themselves too much out yes the original founders left which was a huge bummer mass effect 3 i mean was very good in many ways but just was fully an action game and ultimately a lot of people took serious umbrage with the ending Mm -hmm. dragon age 2 was bad dragon (laughs) age inquisition like was controversial Um, yeah here and we'll stand for it Hiran st- stood for it, and he he put in his honorable mentions, which I respect. And a lot, of, and a lot of people think the Trespasser DLC was outstanding and unfairly overlooked. Yeah, fair. Uh, and then what came after Dragon Age Inquisition? Not like Anthem. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. What a, what about Andromeda? That, oh that God! Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Andromeda comes out in 2017. Bad game. Uh, well, really, at the very least, below average, I would say. It was like, basically, uh, the way I hear it, it wasn't too bad, but it was so easily mockable because of the gifts that everyone was passing around of the terrible, terrible cutscenes. And then Anthem was just the worst game that came out last year, so... That's really a damn shame. Tough times for Bioware. I really hope that they turn it around, but, I mean, I guess we'll see, right? Uh, I'm curious, do you think that any... Japanese studios um, on the JRPG side had a particularly good decade? Um, that's a good question. I feel like Japanese studios more, they're more likely to release like one or two really big titles. That I guess that you makes... could make an argument that Atlas had a great decade. I was going to say Atlas had Persona 5, which was really excellent. I really enjoyed that. Square Enix had a pretty good decade. They had like Dragon Quest Eleven. Yeah. They had, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really liked I liked Final Fantasy fifteen. Um, Final Fantasy fourteen was excellent. I think Square, when you look at them, like a lot of their Western games did not do that well. Oh, their Western ultimately. games are kind of a trash fire. I mean, not a trash fire, but like you look at <laughs> Tomb Raider for all of the emphasis, oh, okay. all of the effort that they put into that game. Like it's kind of like eh. A lot of people just kind of shrug their shoulders at it. It's like Naughty Dog, but not as good. Uh, I mean, the Hitman games are critically acclaimed, but low sellers. Uh, the Marvel, (laughs) the Avengers game. Uh, That's different. When you say like... And then you look at the Japanese output. I mean, Octopath Traveler was really good. DQ11 was really good. Final Fantasy 15, very controversial. Final Fantasy 14 was awesome this decade. Yes. So it's kind of a mixed record. Uh, I wouldn't say that they've exactly returned to their former glory. No, but um, when I was saying like a trash fire, I was thinking like not um, not Eidos Montreal, but more like uh, what was that game about the deaf protagonist? That was deaf really protagon- the Quiet Man. The Quiet Man, yes. I guess that wasn't Western though, but that was just weird. Whatever that was. Oh yeah, I, yeah. That game was like 
people were making fun of that game. That was a very memeable game, wasn't it? <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Um, I would also give a shout out to Monolith Soft because uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was really good. The DLC was really excellent because you could see how they finally got like a really good handle on Switch's hardware. And of course, Monolith Soft is like helping Nintendo behind the scenes a lot. They were helped a lot with the um, Zelda Breath of the Wild. They're working a lot in Breath of the Wild too. So they're a very talented studio and I'm very excited for the things they do. Depending on whether you consider From Software a Japanese RPG developer, right. uh, they had a hell of a decade, didn't they? They did, yes. And I would absolutely consider them Japanese. I know that their, their style was more Western, especially at the time. But they I mean, they're were... Japanese, but the, of course. they're very Japanese. The point is, I we've argued before that Dark Souls isn't really an RPG. Oh, I see where you're coming from. Okay, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it, you know, the, that series helped bring Japanese studios a little bit back into the light. Yeah, I would say so. I would say Dark Souls was where it began to turn around for sure. Yeah, Dark Souls was the light, ironically. I just want to say about Dark Souls, when I don't know if I've already said this on this podcast, but when I reviewed that game, I gave it a, a perfect score and I was like, this is an inc- absolutely incredible example of design. And all anybody could harp on was the frame rate in Blighttown. Yes. I'm like, how could you give this game a five out of five when the frame rate is crap in Blighttown? And <laughs> Good old like Blighttown. 10 years later, it's considered uh, just... indisputable classic it is in every top 10 and oh by the way the fix the freak the frame rate in freaking blight town you happy yeah it's okay guys blight town will not hurt you anymore except for all the insects there okay number four heavier emphasis on nostalgia explosion of digital distribution crowdfunding Mm. allowed for old school genres to flourish that would be old school rpgs classic jrpgs case in point uh, we had the Pillars of Eternity from Obsidian because mm-hmm. Obsidian was like in deep trouble after Stick of Truth. They spent way too much time uh, and effort and money and they had delays and blah, 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 blah. And so there, it was almost like a Hail Mary when they did Pillars of Eternity. And that, I don't think it ended up being that successful, but it was successful, right? And it brought back yes. a genre that had kind of gone away in many respects. Yeah, uh, now it's it's pretty hot to do, like, isometric top-down games, which is cool. And you're absolutely right, there is kind of a revival of retro. Uh, not just because uh, people are nostalgic for it, but I also think there's a little bit of necessity there. Uh, because the Switch is, of course, extremely popular. It's a great RPG machine, but it's not particularly powerful. It's not the game that's going to run, like, you know, really incredible 3D games. I mean, even The Witcher 3, uh, as good as the job they did on that, you could see the compromises everywhere. So I feel like developers prefer to put out games that are more, like, nostalgic because, like, look at the graphics for Octopath Traveler. The Switch can handle that no problem. And, again, like, Pillars of Eternity, et cetera, et cetera, Switch can handle it no problem. And they're great games to play, to- like, on the go. So, yeah, um, I think it's part nostalgia, part necessity. I would also say that, first of all, games are now multi-generational. Mm-hmm. Um They've been around for, what, 50 years at this Something point? Something like that. Longer yeah, than me. So, at least 40. And so that means that several generations of people have grown up playing them and are nostalgic for them. Um, because there's so much media at this point, uh, brands that are known have a, certain, a particular amount of currency. And so therefore, people are going to lean into nostalgia as much as possible. Uh, and also, we are now at a point where the did where there are so many games and so many ways to distribute games that you can cater to literally any taste. And that means 
that no matter how small the niche, you can make a game for it. Case in point, Darkest Dungeon, a game that couldn't just could not have come out in the early 2000s. A hardcore party-based, kind of a roguelike uh, 2D game that was extremely punishing. Like, mm-hmm. no publisher would have picked that game up in the mid-2000s. They just wouldn't. But no. some indie devs came in, and they had a ton of success with it and darkest dungeon ended up being quite influential in the pc scene and now i'm really pumped for darkest dungeon 2 yeah um it has been an excellent excellent year for smaller more experimental indie games like stardew valley that's a perfect example like you're not going to get a publisher picking that up in the early 2000s but with the digital distribution it's like hey i want to make a better harvest moon here it is and it just took off same with something like you know untitled goose game which is an rpg but it, it gives you another idea of uh you know, how much more flexibility people have nowadays. And the only problem, of course, is it's hard to preserve games that are digital. But I guess you got to take the bad with the good and RIP GameStop. Well, our friend Jeremy Parrish is at Limited Run Games that yes. does uh, physical versions of popular indie games. So Yeah, and I'm really, really glad to see that that's actually a really excellent uh, service to provide. And uh, pretty much Jeremy is in his element now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Congratulations to our friend Jeremy Parrish. Yes, I would say that if you just, we were talking about Final Fantasy VII Remake earlier, I mean, that just is the er example of just leaning as heavily in, as possible into nostalgia. I feel like if they had made Final Fantasy VII Remake in the late 2000s, they would have tried to make it very different than what they are doing now. Do you think it would have been more like a, a traditional like HD upgrade? I think it would have been a lot more self-serious than it is now. I think they're leaning into... I think they're leaning heavily into the craziness of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, like, well, you saw Scarlet using an actual soldier as a footstool, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think great. they're just having fun with it in a way that they wouldn't have 10 years ago. Yeah, it's like they kind of know that they made a, a little bit of a wacky game and they're having, a, they're having a good time with it. Okay, number five. The huge success of the Switch has boosted JRPGs in the latter half of the decade. I mean, you look at games like Bravely Default, you look at games like Octopath Traveler. I mentioned that JRPGs and such were previously more of a handheld concern. In the latter half of the decade, they fully made their way back to home console, and I think we are the richer for it. Yeah, and not just the Switch, but also the 3DS was really, really excellent for smaller RPGs. Like, Atlas had a great time with that system, and and so did I, frankly, because I got to go back and play a lot of games that I missed the first time around on the DS, like... um, I got into Etrian Odyssey. I got into Radiant Historia. Uh, those are great games. And of course, uh, there's the um, the last game that came out, the Persona Labyrinth sequel. That was also a great game. So 3DS was a, a great RPG system. It still is. And I'm really kind of sad about the fact that I have so many great RPGs still there that I haven't finished or even played. And I don't know if I'll ever get to them because I'm busy with my Switch. No disrespect to handhelds, of course. Like, there are so many great games that came on it. I've put hundreds, if not thousands, of hours into my DS and 3DS. I think the main thing is that just by virtue of being on a home console, you're just necessarily going to get in front of a wider audience. And Mm -hmm. the greater opportunities provided by more robust online functionality and way better graphics means that you just have a much better chance to explode outside of your traditional niche i think a great case in point is pokemon sword and shield a game that is selling faster than any pokemon game ever at this point it's blowing the doors off pokemon x and y and you you would think wow like okay that's pretty amazing 
because the 3DS wasn't exactly an unsuccessful platform, right? No, it was huge. But the Switch has just taken that series to an entirely different level of popularity. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because it is a lot more visible on a console versus just a restricted to a handheld. And like Octopath Traveler, I mean, there's just no way that it would have gotten the hype that it did if it hadn't been on Switch. No, absolutely not. Like, I feel like it would have been uh, probably a little bit overlooked on 3DS. And the same goes for Fire Emblem Three Houses as well, a game yeah. that made it onto our uh, top 100 games of the decade. Yeah, and that's another uh, uh, game that's uh, basically exploding previous records for for the series. Okay, so those are our major trends uh, for RPGs this decade. Uh, did we miss any? I would love to hear your thoughts in a Twitter DM or in the comments or thereabouts. Okay, so let's talk about some of the notable entries that were on this list. Nadia, looking at the notable entries that were on our top 100 list, there are quite a few of them, actually. Uh huh. Do any of them stand out to you? The Witcher 3, just because it was like, you know, I was just talking about how I met CD Projekt Red and they were like basically a bunch of nobodies. And uh, now, as you say, they're like a triple A developer. And to see this game that that came out and by all accounts apparently influenced the likes of, of the new Zelda, that's pretty incredible. That's definitely one of the most influential RPGs of the decade, no question. I think it's the defining RPG of the decade. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Like... When we, everybody wants to be The Witcher 3 now. And yes. it leans so heavily into the established, like, AAA trends of this decade. When I was on Vigit Game Apocalypse, so many of those games were open world uh, because people just love open world genres. I can't blame them. It makes you really feel like you're totally immersed in the world, that you get to tool around in this beautiful fantasy land and just enjoy all of the little touches, like the animals running around and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, another standout to me, we had Undertale on there, I think, at number nine. And that's another example of an indie that would never have come anywhere near the systems of the early 2010s, like just really making a huge impact uh, in the indie scene, thanks to, gosh, not, not only digital distribution, but also uh, it was kickstarted, it was crowdfunded, so that made it possible. And gosh, I think Toby made it on like Game Maker or some like you know, engine that lets anyone make a game. And he made this incredible, this influential game that's still part of like, you know, the gaming culture to the to the point that is referenced in Super Smash Brothers. So there are four that really stand out to me as like pretty interesting, or at least have kind of are interesting, interestingly reflective of things that happened this past decade. Mm -hmm. Nira Automata, number five, an amazing game. Yes. Uh, borderline our game of the year in 2017. Barely, almost beat Breath of the Wild. It was yeah, it good. was close. It was very close. It did such an incredible job with uh, metatextual storytelling. Um, it's multitude of endings, that kind of thing. Um, it made Yo Taro Yoko a, a star mm -hmm. um, in the JRPG space. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, it's like uh, just an okay action game for the most part. Good enough. Uh, Platinum made it competent as opposed exactly. to outright bad. But the point of it was the just really unique uh, aesthetic, the really affecting storytelling, the kind of nihilistic outlook on a lot of different things. Uh, it really stood out as a special game. And it's not surprising that it has a huge following now. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful it's soundtrack a really too. Game. Fantastic soundtrack. That was another one that was, um, as I recall, it was uh, 
really neck and neck with at the Game Awards with uh, Persona 5 soundtrack, which of course was also amazing. Uh, I think it edged out, but yeah, it has a very haunting soundtrack. I love it. And I think it's also indicative of the resurgence of Japanese games. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that an entire generation has now come of age that just they grew up with anime and they freaking love anime. And so yes. they just embrace it in a way that maybe people who are 10 years older than them just didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, when we were coming of age, anime was still like, I mean, it's still pretty dorky, but even dorkier. <laughs> Right. Yeah, like, when I was a kid, the only anime I really knew of, and I didn't even know it was anime at the time, was, like, I would watch, uh, like, adaptations of storybooks like Wizard of Oz and Belle and Sebastian and stuff like that. That was all I really knew. I feel like if Nier Automata had come out in 2009, people would have made fun of it. I think you're right, yeah, because that was, like, when games were, like, a lot more buff and military-focused. Like, what the hell is this? What is, who's this chick with this weird dress? Why is she blindfolded? And in fact, when Nier came out, all people could do was kind of harp on its weird, like, design choices and its aesthetic and the fact that one of the characters was intersex and that kind of thing. Yeah, there was definitely some discussion around that. And I remember the way 2B dresses was also very controversial. And I think, didn't Yoko Taro just say, look, I like sexy girls? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I respect that. You're not bullshitting me. Go for it. Uh, Yakuza 0, I, I, you could argue that's just an action-adventure game, but man, Yakuza 0 really popularized Yakuza, didn't it? It did, yeah. Yakuza 0 and I think Yakuza Kiwami uh, were both uh, extremely influential, really helped to get Yakuza on the map over here in the West. And it and really set the stage for Yakuza 7, which will be an RPG. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think I will actually get that like day of and start playing it because it is very it's supposed to be like basically a whole parody of Dragon Quest. Uh, Fallout New Vegas, a game that, when it came out, famously came fell one point short on Metacritic from getting mm. Obsidian their bonuses, like, and like was seemingly a failure because it was so buggy and was really dried in a lot of ways, and now a lot of people consider it the best 3D Fallout game. Yeah, it's definitely a game that was not looked kindly upon when it first came out. I remember a lot of complaints and just a lot of like, hey, Fallout 3 is so much better, but in retrospect, uh, it gets probably the most praise of any fallout of the modern fallout games yeah i think this game uh had its reputation rehabilitated the most of yes maybe definitely. any rpg on this list divinity original sin 2 which um is probably larian's uh i mean magnum opus mm-hmm. a, a lot of people really 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 love that game and it's out on nintendo switch now <laughs> yeah i really gotta get it i really gotta get my button gear in place on that. come on nadia do it <laughs> <laughs> well, I just started The Witcher 3, so I don't know. I'm going to make it homework. I have I have so much damn homework. I, <laughs> I'm never going to enjoy the summer. And finally, Final Fantasy XIV, a game that did so much to define Square Enix's fortunes, and a lot of people consider it the best Final Fantasy game. And you just finished Realm, A Realm Reborn, and you just seem wholly into it now. Yeah, I am 100% converted to a, a Final Fantasy XIV believer. So Mike and I just like can talk about, like, all the, the the cool stuff you can do. Although I did try to dye my chocobo red and it turned out purple. <laughs> it's a nice purple, but I'm really mad about it. Okay, and now let's talk about some honorable mentions. Uh, for me, I put down Persona 4 Golden, and the reason we didn't put Persona 4 Golden on the main list was because effectively it was a port, an enhanced port, right? which uh, of a game that came out in 2008. And so I was like, ah, there are other games that I can celebrate on this list. But I mean, obviously, we've talked about Persona 4 Golden, Ad Nauseam. We love that game. 
I think a game that is more interesting and more controversial that we left it off, Xenoblade Chronicles. Nadia, yes. let's talk about Xenoblade Chronicles. Yes, I put Xenoblade Chronicles as my, um, it was actually a toss-up between that and Rhythm Heaven Fever, because, uh, or sorry, Rhythm Heaven Mega Mix, so I absolutely adore the this Rhythm Heaven This is the power games. of the Monado. Yes. <laughs> Xenoblade Chronicles is also an extremely interesting story, because we almost didn't get it, and to this day, I don't know why at that time, at that particular point in time, that was around 2010, 2011, 12, uh, Nintendo was very resilient, was very resistant to these to bring Japanese games, like very Japanese games, over to the Wii. Like, it wasn't just Xenoblade Chronicles, it was also Last Story. There was a couple of RPGs they just had no interest in in localizing until, uh, you know, Operation Rainfall and all those movements made it clear, hey, we want these games. And I'm really glad that Xenoblade Chronicles came out because it's one of my favorite RPGs of all time. It has that kind of MMO-inspired battle system that I talked about earlier, which I guess Ooh. maybe that's a reason you don't like it very much. Well, it's more tactical, though. It's more of it a is quite tactical. kind of situation. Yes, but it does still have that influence there. And to me, though, it's not so much about the battles so much as it's about the setting. I adore Xenoblade's 1 and 2's settings. Um, I just love the idea of being on this giant being, you're this little tiny thing scurrying around and everything's just kind of living in harmony on this being. And it's not a matter of, oh, you have to travel way across the land and go to your goal here. It's no, you have to ascend. You have to keep on climbing the Bionis, get to its knee, get to its hip, and finally get up to its head. And it's like, what's up with the head? We don't know. It's it's a big mystery. So I just found that extremely interesting. Soundtrack is beautiful. Uh, character designs are weird, but very compelling. It's a, it was a different RPG, and it still is. It's, a, it's an RPG I, will, I won't forget anytime soon. Great setting. It is. Unique really battle is. system. Uh, beautiful world in many respects. Mm-hmm. I think the characters weren't that exciting. They were. They had their charms. I think the, the localized voices helped a lot because they're like, this is the Monado's power. I, I love that cheesy stuff. And Ryan's like, no, it's Ryan time. It was ridiculous and fun. Side quests were kind of meh. Very Side fetch quests questy. Were very good. Yeah, yeah. It's very straightforward game in many respects. Uh, I think that it is a very good RPG that maybe gets slightly more credit than it deserves because a it was in that famous Operation Rainfall situation mm-hmm. where people were pushing so hard, were so obsessed with it getting localized for the Wii um, because this was like the end of the Wii's heyday. And it didn't look like Xenoblade Chronicles was going to come over here. It was only available in England, which really added to its mystique in many yes. respects. People Hence were modding the their Wii's and everything to try and, and to try and play it. And uh, then when it finally came over here, people were like, "Yeah, this is this is good," you know. And then, of course, it was a Wii exclusive as well, and people really hold on tight to their Nintendo exclusives. And uh, Monolith Software is, I believe, a second party, possibly even a first party studio at this point. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So just just by virtue of being a, a Nintendo joint, people are going to automatically accord Xenoblade Chronicles that much more uh, attention, I suppose. Um, that said, like I'm probably doing it a disservice. I think it is a a very good RPG in many respects, and I'm really looking forward to the remaster. I'm very much looking forward to the remaster. It's, it's not is there anything just, that makes it truly special? Is it just the setting? The setting helps a lot because it's not afraid to be fantastic. 
just it, it takes like dreams and ideas and it runs with them. Um, I just really enjoy the, the, the idea, like I said, of, of being on those, those huge creatures, something that Zoonily Chronicles 2 really, really expanded upon. It also had like a lot of interesting locales. Like you had the Gower Plains, which is like this huge sweeping area. You had, um, like these, I can't remember the name of the, there was like this forest that was all like phosphorescent and really, really beautiful. The music would change at night and it would just be just really, really nice ambiance. Uh, yeah, so it is partly because of the setting, but it also, it felt alive in a way a lot of RPGs didn't at the time because that was, you would see like a lot of like your potential targets like living on the plains and, you know, having, living their lives, doing whatever. Uh, another thing that you know, like Chronicles 2 expanded on really nicely, you would also like in that kind of true RPG, uh, sorry, MMORPG sense, have really strong enemies that you could engage or try to avoid, uh, preferably avoid, because they would flatten you if you weren't ready. There was a, So it gave the game a, a certain sense of life and danger that wasn't really present in a lot of RPGs at the time. I thought the battle system, it was pretty tactical, and I liked... It does. It did something with the boss fights that I really like in a lot of RPGs, which is each boss required you to change your mindset and your strategy. Yes, absolutely. Um, the boss fights were quite serious. I and know a couple you, people got stuck on them. You had to juggle your party in such a way because you could find yourself literally not being able to do damage because uh, as powerful as Minato was, it couldn't damage organic life. So that yes. was the problem. Yeah, so that was really interesting. I think um, Dunban had a sword that could damage mechanical enemies, and but otherwise the Monado was all you really had against mechanical enemies. But of course, as you said, the Monado was almost useless against organic enemies. So this came is up the against, Monado's power. This is the Monado's power. I'm really feeling it. Yeah, I got uh, sick of those voices after a while. <laughs> I didn't. I stick just over I, and over and over again. I love so, it. It's so stupid. The one thing that maybe is holding back Xenoblade Chronicles slightly right now is that. It's not the greatest to play on Wii, and yeah. it's really not great to play on 3DS. No, it's really not. I tried. I really did try. Um, uh, so a lot of people, <laughs> like playing it on uh, an emulator is almost kind of the best course because it looks much better that way. Yes, um, but you're right because I had a pro controller, so I had no problem. But if you didn't have a pro controller and you're trying to control that game with a nunchuck and a, and a remote, good luck to you. But that remaster looks tasty. I'm excited. Yes, the remaster looks very good. I'm very excited for that because um, I know a lot of people feel like maybe 2 wasn't as good as 1, but I really, really enjoyed 2 a lot. So I'm, I think, I'm I, I pro- think Xenoblade Chronicles is just firmly stuck in that B-tier RPG territory. Uh, c- correct me if I'm wrong. I just, I, I think it's it's good. It is very good in many respects. But I, I don't, I can't say that it rises to the level of classic. Maybe not, but it's a very... Um, it's a very RPG RPG, for lack of a better term. Like it, like I said, it very much celebrates the fantasy side. It's better side. than a lot of the pack. It's a, better than your average RPG, for sure. It's definitely much better than your average RPG, and it's definitely unforgettable. It's very distinct. Um, I feel like Xenoblade Chronicles X maybe didn't have that certain distinct feeling and flavor that 1 and 2 did. But 1 and 2 definitely, as well as the, the Torna DLC, they all feel very distinct. You can look at these games in an instant and say, oh, that's Xenoblade. Anyway, uh, looking, so I guess we'll give an opportunity to 
kind of revisit Xenoblade Chronicles when it gets remastered, and perhaps yes. we'll have a different opinion, and we can retroactively add it to the top 100 list. But moving on to notable RPGs that weren't on the list, uh, here are a few. Uh, one of them, and I didn't include this on our list, Nadia, so I'm sorry if I'm blindsided you. Uh, the Last Story by Sakaguchi. Which, I did not play that. <laughs> oh, it's actually kind of neat. It's <laughs> I'd like to. interesting combo of stealth action and also RPG mechanics. It's it's different. Right, yeah. I remember I was I meant to get it, but for some reason I didn't get it when it came out because that was another Operation Rainfall Rescue. Man... <laughs> I, I hate port begging, but that would be a really interesting game to turn into a Switch port. It, it could really do with an HD remaster. Yeah, I would absolutely pick it up. And it's the, we were talking about short RPGs that are good last year. That game was really short. Was it? Yes, super short. That's Yeah, that's good and bad, but mostly good, I think. All right, some other games, that major games that weren't on the list. Uh, Dragon Age Origins, which I... I don't know, like, Dragon Age just never really rose to the level of um, Bioware's best fantasy RPGs from the 2000s, especially Baldur's Gate. It it was good, but it felt too bloated for its own good. I've just never been able to really get into Dragon Age, and I have tried. Um, I might try again someday, but it's just something about it. uh, I play it, and I'm like, oh, why aren't I playing Skyrim, you know? Like, that's how I feel. And actually, come to think of it, Dragon Age Origins came out in 2009 anyway. Oh, well, disqualified. <laughs> but Dragon Age 2 was not good. Yeah, see, that one, I, I don't even think I touched it. There, there are Dragon Age 2 hipsters who will defend <laughs> it. And I'm like, look, dude, cut and paste dungeons. Uh, the tenure thing was not done extremely well. And in fact, was done much better in Dragon Quest V. And the third act was a disaster. It just was. And the battle system wasn't very good. Dragon Age 2 is not a good game. Yes, don't be a Dragon Age hipster. (laughs) Sorry, Eric. (laughs) Oh, is Eric really into it? Eric and Rowan Kaiser are both big boosters of Dragon Age 2. And I just say, I say unto them, no. (laughs) Sorry, dudes. Uh, Another one. We didn't put any Pokemon games on the list. Yeah. um, I think we did have a discussion about putting Pokemon on there, but... um... I think it's the case of, like, Mario Kart. Where, yes, exactly. I mean, this is a long-established franchise. Uh, this is just another iteration of that particular franchise. I, uh, Even more so than Mario Kart. You could argue that Mario Kart 8 is the best of the Mario Kart franchise. Uh-huh. Like, the peak of it. And therefore, Mario Kart 8 deserves uh, inclusion. I personally think Black 2 and White 2 is one of the absolute best Pokemon games. But... I mean, it's not on our top 25 RPG list. Pokemon Gold and Silver is, you know, yes. and I don't know that any Pokemon game rises quite to that level or has in the past 10 years. Pokemon is, is a very tricky inclusion because I find a lot of people like, you know, they say, oh, Pokemon fell apart here and they'll list a game that I personally love. You know what I mean? Like there are people who a lot of the Dexeters who are like, oh, Sword and Shield are terrible, but it all st- really started to fall apart with Sun and Moon. It's like, I love Sun and Moon. I just adored it. Um, and I really like Sword and Shield as well, whereas other people think it, it came from Satan himself. So it's really hard to say because it's te- Pokemon is so technical underneath its surface. Uh, continue on. We did not put Fire Emblem Awakening on there. We went with Three Houses instead because I think Fire Emblem yeah, I think, Awakening I is think one of the weaker entries, actually. I really loved Awakening a lot, but I think Three Houses is definitely the better entry. Strange Journey was on there for a while, but ultimately did not make the list. 
yeah, Strange Journey. That's another game I played for the first time on the 3DS when they had, when Atlas did the remake, and I really enjoyed that. That was my first SM like you know pure SMT game. But um, yeah, I can see why it wouldn't really make the list. Uh, we had we did have a Persona on there, so I think you could make a case for Devil Survivor. I never played Devil Survivor. Oh, Devil Survivor is really good. Is it? It's also really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Um, the only thing I don't like about Devil Survivor is the character art. Do not like that character art. Is that the one with the dude with the green stuff all over him? Uh, I don't know. Like, they just have very weird misshapen heads and <laughs> big eyes, and I don't like it. But I would absolutely welcome a Devil Survivor 3 for the Switch. I think it's done slightly a disservice by being on that tiny DS screen. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be on a much bigger screen now. And yeah. it's actually, it got ported to the 3DS as well, so... Yeah, that one, I didn't play that one, but still, like, I feel like the SMT Wait games... Wait I given... thought you played Double Survivor 2. No, I played, uh, I, I just said I played, um, what's the one we just talked about? It wasn't Double Survivor 2, no. <laughs> so a game that probably deserved to be on this list, and, but the problem is that nobody on the team really plays it, and so we, it, it feels like it's off in PC land in, some, <laughs> in many ways. The PC Even though it's corral. out on console, I don't know, like... I think that any team is going uh, that's the size of ours is going to have a blind spot. Absolutely. And maybe we have a big blind spot for Path of Exile. Yeah, see, that's uh, that means pretty much nothing to me, unfortunately, which is really a shame because, yes, the obviously, PC is a huge RPG machine, and we're sitting here like, duh. What if I told you that Path of Exile is one of the most successful PC games of the past decade? I believe it, and I believe it because I know nothing about it, and I'm like a real, I'm just the real example of console trash. It's my, that's my weakness. It managed to turn Grinding Gear Games into a major player in the PC RPG space. Uh, It was constantly being updated. Uh, It has a sequel coming out. Right. Uh, Found tremendous success on the Xbox One. And the one time I tried to play it, I just did not, I was just not able to get into it. Is it like really, really kind of intense? It just feels kind of old school. I gotcha. Yeah. Being old school is not a bad thing, but I guess I prefer Diablo. (laughs) See, that's actually one game this this century, not century, this decade that I played for the first time and really enjoyed was Diablo 3. Like, like I I really, really got into that. You want to talk about a game that got rescued? Diablo 3? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know that the launch was kind of a disaster. And yet, Diablo 3, even now, like, you can't really say, oh, this was better than Diablo 2. Like, it's good, but in some ways, it always feels like it's held back by its bad launch. Yeah, that makes sense. See, that was my, see, I have nothing to really measure it against because it was my first Diablo game, and I think it was a good place to start because with Diablo, what are you doing? You're just killing demons. Oh no, there's bad demons. Get rid of them. I have two crossbows. I'm ready to do this. Honestly, I feel like I'm doing Path of Exile a disservice. There's so much to dig into with this game in terms of like all of the good things that it did. Right. It found a monetization system that worked without being exploitive. Mm. It has an insane amount of depth and customization. It just has a completely ridiculous skill tree, like beyond anything that you can ever imagine, Nadia. It is constantly being updated. It's... It's insanely good. It it is. And I'm sure if you asked around, you get a guest on to talk to you about it. Oh, I'm sure I could. I could. I could get the developers on here. In fact, I probably <laughs> have had the developers on here at some point. There you go. There have been like 250 episodes at this point. I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know who's been on this dang podcast at this point. Be our memory listeners, because ours are fizzled. <laughs> but yeah, Path of Exile is a game that definitely deserves more attention, and I think we're going to definitely give it to it when Path of Exile 2 comes out. That's fair. We'll do our best. Uh, Final Fantasy Fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, it does, it's not a game that deserves to be on this list. No, um, especially since I've... <sighs> we I've, let Mike and Katie win. But I really... Here's the thing about Final Fantasy XV. I was never playing it for the gameplay because, yeah, the gameplay was shallow as heck. I was playing it because I really loved the road trip aspect. I think that was a really fun thing to do for an RPG, and I'd like to see it expanded upon in future, you know, installments. I really love the characters. I love... Noctis and, and Gladio and, and Prompto and, and Ignis. I think they had a really interesting dynamic between them. And I think it really helped a lot of women get into RPGs because they also like the chemistry between the boys. And I'll never stop being mad at the fact that Conan made fun of them on, on the show on his like, you know, clueless gamer bit where he's like, Oh, they're talking about wedding dresses. That's so stupid and gay. And it's like, ah, just. They're good boys. Let them be good boys. And I really enjoyed, I really just enjoyed the, the banter between them and the camaraderie. It's a shame that Final Fantasy XV uh, didn't have to be completely, basically scrapped and start over. Yeah, yeah. But then also using the ideas that were already kind of in place as best they could. It was a weird, weird game. And they did their best to salvage it. But I, I don't know, like, it's really indicative of the bad times that Square had. The one good thing about the game that I will say is that it really is a sign that Square, I, I take that game as a sign that Square Enix was working really hard to get out of its pit, which, in my opinion, what, it, it did that quite successfully. Because even though I haven't played, like, the really updated version of Final Fantasy XV, I hear it's basically a whole new game now, thanks to the fixes and the, and the DLC. And the last one is Octopath Traveler, which I know that you're more of a booster of it than I am. Yeah, um, I don't know if I would have put it on the list, though. Like, I really, really enjoyed it, but there's it has certain glaring faults that if someone says to me, hey, I can't really play this game because I don't like the way the story comes together, I don't like the fact that the characters will interact, I can understand that. I, I, I feel that. Um, it has a really great battle system, but it's, you know, it was kind of done first with Bravely Default, so... Yeah, I, I still recommend it wholeheartedly, but um, I'm not like, oh my god, why isn't it on this list? Somebody was dragging us for not having enough JRPGs on our list, and I was like, uh, I mean, we put, a, we put DQ11 and DQ Builders 2 and Persona 5 and Nier Automata on here. What more do you want, man? I'm just looking at like a selection here. Skyrim, Fallout, Stardew Valley. JRPG. They're specifically calling out JRPGs. Oh, well, come on, dude. Like, I'm sorry. We, I, I can't, uh, how, I don't think you can look US Gamer in the, in the metaphorical face and say, these guys hate JRPGs, because obviously we don't. I mean, there was that one guy who used to say that we hated Japanese games a long time ago. Yeah, what was his deal? Like, he just, like, yeah. really had it out for us, saying, oh, you guys hate Japanese games. Like, and also, racist. I was, uh, I only liked PC games and hated all, all consoles. That was weird. People it really describes weird. me, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, like Cat Bailey, maybe bizarre uh, a console hater, PC lover, <laughs> hates all Japanese things. Yeah, that's totally matches like the woman who spent like how many years in Japan? Yeah, well, three. But oh wow. Okay, so that's that's a wrap. I think for the 2010s. Uh, any main takeaways, Nadia? 
Um, it was a very interesting year full of like a lot of changes. I think it started off a little bit uh, grim and then it really grew and grew. And now we're in a really good place for RPGs. I hope we stay here for a while. Yeah, I was kind of looking back on where we were in 2010 and how much things have changed. Did you know that 2010 was the peak of Farmville on Facebook? Oh, kill me now. Now I remember what I was doing. I was writing about a lot of web-based games. I was writing about a lot of Facebook games. Not so much Farmville, but I was writing about, like, for some reason, uh, hidden object games were a huge, huge deal. And I was writing, like, reviewing those, and it's like, yep, this sure is a game where you find things. Plastic instrument games were still very much a thing in 2010? Yes, and of course everyone has at least one drum set in a closet somewhere, or they gave it to Goodwill, or probably still rotting. It was still kind of theoretically possible to play every game that came out in 2010. Yeah, that's true. Like, that was before licenses started to expire, didn't it? Free-to-play mobile was just not as much of a thing. No. Um, back then, I think most games, if you wanted them on mobile, you were you had to pay like a, a buck for them. And I remember that brought its own host of complaints because developers were like, hey, how can we possibly make a profit off these games that, that you know people are paying a dollar for and then it got worse i would say that dude bro games were still very much in the forefront of the consciousness in fact correct me if i'm wrong okay so i think modern warfare 2 came out in 2009 mm -hmm. so i mean that was where we were i feel like and gears of war 2 i f i think came out in 08 i want to say uh yeah something like that so like it just felt like we were peak Halo, Gears of War, Modern Warfare. Like, that was just dominating everything. It was the worst. Yeah, it wasn't uh, It wasn't my favorite time of gaming. Um, I remember my brother, that was like, he was like huge into games more so than I was at the time because he was really into those dude bro games. Uh, then he had a kid. <laughs> I think that's maybe what happened. A lot of people who are into these dude bro games had kids and they can't really, you know, ha go around shooting... Uh, noobs anymore although my brother always makes sure to go on on christmas day so we can shoot all the noobs and i think the worst thing was seeing the developers that we loved from japan and elsewhere yeah. trying to ape western games and failing miserably there was that and there's also that mass exodus of like really popular developers with really like amazing resumes going to like zynga and stuff like that into mobile hell into mobile hell yeah i god who did i, I interviewed like the the creator one of the creators of civilization brian can't remember his last name because I'm not a Civ fan. I'm sorry, everyone. But he was, like, working on Farmville. And I interviewed him at Zynga. And, that's, yeah. That's freaking grim, man. Freaking it was, it was, grim. It was quite grim. But, In 2010, hey. we still had a freaking uh, 2K executive saying that strategy games weren't a thing. Let's make XCOM into a first-person shooter. Oh, that's where we were. That's, that's where, where we were. We were. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the great... It was not my favorite time for gaming. I, I'm really kind of glad those days are behind us. Yeah, um, I do Like, I think that games are messed up and... In plenty of ways. Of in course. 2020, and not the least a discourse. The discourse is more poisonous than ever. But at the same time, like, there are more games than ever. And, like, it feels like if you want a thing, you're going to find an ex a great example of that. It's like, yes. there is a game for you out there right now. That's why I have a friend who sometimes kind of gets, like, a little bit, like, sorry for herself. Like, oh, there's nothing for me to play out there. Because, uh, like, you know, she watches the Game Awards and sees, like, the spectacle and how stupid it is. And I'm like, no, you don't get to make that excuse around me because I will point you to a 10,000 games that you personally would love and I know you would love if you would open up to them.
And with that, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore Kappa. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. We love to hear comments from you. Please leave a comment on the show notes. Uh, We like to save up a lot of the best ones for a mailbag that we do every single month. And we just like interacting with our listeners. Uh, A lot of you people are so nice and we really enjoy hearing nice comments from you. I'm I'm glad I've seen so many new people saying, hey, I just discovered the pod. I really love it. Uh, You are really brightening my day with RPGs. And that's great. Come join, bathe in the glory, the crimson glory of the blood god. So, all right, we will be back again next week, as always, to start a brand new month, and there's going to be plenty more to talk about. It will be almost time for another console RPG quest, Nadia. I think it's about time to perhaps get into the Dreamcast, or maybe we can talk about the next round of handhelds, because uh, the there's the Wonder Swan and the and the Neo Geo Pocket. Please look forward to that next month. But until then. Thanks for listening, and for Mario and myself, we'll be back next week. Happy adventuring.